Gyro Nation Metal. Welcome back, everyone. This is Jeff with Gyro Nation Metal. Podcasts are as essential to the world of metal in a similar fashion to logo and cover artists, promoters, event organizers, researchers, and musical engineers, if that's the right term. Podcasters not only have the opportunity to review music and chat about the music as a whole, but they also give other people in the metal community a chance to express themselves in long-form conversations rather than the same brief interview provided in writing by many metal sites. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Mike Smith of the Metal Thrashing Nerd Podcast to dive deeper into his approach and other involvement in music. The Metal Thrashing Nerd Podcast has been operating since July of 2021. Mike, it's great to meet you, and thank you for joining me today. Hey, no, it's great to be here, Jeff. Uh, I'm super excited. I've been listening to some of your episodes, really enjoying it. Um, I, obviously, you're having some great success of your own. I, you know, I saw recently you had over what was it, three hundred thousand listens on your podcast. That's that's great. I think uh, that's a little bit steep. I think it was just over three thousand, but yeah, um, I didn't actually expect people to be listening to this. So it's kind of uh, it's humbling to say the least. Oh no, you're doing good work, and you're trying to promote bands, and, and you know, the metal community itself has a love for this music, and podcasts like yours and mine offer a chance for people to hear about new bands and hear their stories exactly and i like uh, a lot of the metal podcasts they seem to focus on like smaller lesser known bands i mean you have obviously podcasts like say the metal injection podcast where they have the bigger bands and the more famous people but at the same time the, the whole community is so rich in talent and um, innovation that you need to cover everything big and small yeah, no, and i think that's part of what i got into podcasting for was i uh i, I just wanted to give opportunity to bands that you know might not have had it because i know i would have killed to been on more podcasts and had done more interviews and stuff when i was still playing in a band mm -hmm. i just wanted to really open that up for people so they could do that too you know it means a lot to me because i wanted those opportunities Totally. And it's a great way to get um, people to know you as a person rather than just the musicians. And something that I found when I first started going to concerts is you could never really get close to the band. And um, I mean, that's also contradictory from what I've seen since. And basically, like, you'll have smaller bands that still hang out in the crowd, but sometimes you just don't have the opportunity to talk to them the, the way you want. And it kind of maybe humanizes them a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, that's, I think that's part of the, the beauty of podcasting, too, is you know, we're not necessarily the quote-unquote professional interviewers on a lot of the magazines and you know major sites and stuff like that so we get an opportunity i think to be more expressive and open with our questions and we can kind of humanize people more like i like to ask about hobbies and things like that uh or even just digging into gear because growing up i read a lot of guitar world and they asked about gear so that's a natural thing for me to go to and i think it yeah, fills exactly. in the nerd part of my podcast you know especially talking about the gear and stuff <laughs> No doubt, but you're also a self-expressed nerd. Like you're a huge fan of uh, wrestling and comics and stuff like that too. Oh yeah, I mean, it's all over the place, man. God, I, like my living room is nothing but like nerd memorabilia, vinyl records, band merch, and wrestling stuff, man. I, I mean, there, if you go in this closet, I've got a closet over here, and I've got a giant bookshelf. If you go in there, it's filled with nothing but like graphic novel, comic books, you know, from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. Because I've been reading comics since I was like five, six years old, you know, since I could read. Yeah, it definitely drew you in. I mean, looking at a book and it didn't have any pictures when you when you first started, you weren't really drawn to it because you couldn't really, I guess, you didn't have the imagination necessary to understand everything that the books were trying to say. But in a comic, you had the pictures, but you still had the dialogue and, and the scenes, everything that was going on in the story. Well, yeah, that was uh, like my, for me as a kid, that was my like my storybooks, you know, uh, 
like I look at a lot of my son's books and stuff and the, you know, the pictures and things like that for me, once I got about five or six, it was like the comics really drew me in because from panel to panel, they would tell a story and a good artist from panel to panel on a comic can tell a story without words. That was one of the like highest qualities of Jack Kirby. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, but he was one of the you know, main artists behind the creation of so many Marvel characters like the X-Men. Um, he actually had a bit of a hand in Daredevil. Um, uh, he'd loosely helped with Spider-Man. He had created the Avengers. You know, he'd created Captain America in the 1940s for Timely Comics. He'd been at it for years. But he had such a way, even though his art wasn't flawless or like super finished, and sometimes it was just bulky, it was powerful, and it told a story from panel to panel that you could just, you could look at the panels alone, and you could tell what was going on. And that led to Definitely, what was yeah. called... Well, that led to the, what was called the Marvel way with comic books. Um, the Marvel method itself was someone like the writer, like Stan Lee or whoever at the time, would come up with a basic plot for the story, hand it to the artist, they would draw the story out, and then Stan would finish it up by putting words with it. That's pretty cool. It incorporates a whole lot more than just the author. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, the exact opposite approach of what DC was doing. Interesting. So were they doing everything first and then asking the, art, uh, the artist basically just to draw alongside? Um, no, they just pretty much, like Lee would just give them a basic idea or plot. Like it could be like, uh, well, I've got this idea for a guy called Galactus and he's going to come to Earth. And then Jack Kirby would draw it out and then Stan would get it and he'd go, well, who's this guy on this silver surfboard? Who's the silver guy? And he'd be like, I figured if he's coming to Earth, he's got to have somebody to come to Earth to check the place out first. So this is his herald, the silver surfer. And he came to Earth to warn the populace of Galactus is coming and to, uh, you know, kind of scope out the planet for him. And then, you know, Stan afterwards would fill it all in. That's where the word bubbles and stuff like that would come in afterwards. That's really cool. I like that. A very unique method, and it's what made Marvel what it was and, you know, turned it into the juggernaut it's been and been out selling DC for, what, 60 years now? Yeah, pretty much. And I think um, the films just kind of reiterated that. Not reiterated, but reinforced it. Oh, absolutely. I think they did an incredible job with the films, too. It's crazy. Like, I didn't think that they could do something on such a huge scope um, and then draw in old and new fans alike. I did and didn't because... I think back to the way they used to tie in comic books together with the Marvel universe itself. Like the, the biggest thing about the Marvel universe too, it wasn't just the, the method they took. There was this thing about the Marvel universe in the comics. They were all very interconnected while, whereas DC, not everybody was connected and there was all these different like earths and things like that. You know, they'd be like earth three, earth four, Shazam's on this earth and all the whole multiverse thing. Whereas with Marvel starting out, it was all set in New York and everybody, within the same area so it was nothing for spider-man to run into the fantastic four you know thor could team up with uh you know any random person he could just run into captain america mm. interesting so dc basically took the approach of um they just kind of they made different characters like you said in different earths but then they had a hard time i'm guessing at the end kind of tying everybody together in a way that made sense until around about the 80s um with crisis on infinite earths they took all that and they they took all the Earths and they turned it into one multiverse, uh, one plant, one place in the multiverse. And they tied all their old stories together and fixed continuity. And that was a thing. Once again, with Marvel was continuity. They had uh, someone that specifically kept up with continuity over the years. Uh, you know that kind of went out the window in the '90s a bit. 
things got really wacky in the 90s. They were just kind of throwing stuff at a at the wall to see what would stick. Because you had the big comic boom because of collectors. Then they were overprinting because collectors were figuring out, oh, well, if I'm buying new number ones every week, they're not worth anything. So everybody stopped buying. And that killed a lot of comic shops. It killed a lot of the comic business. Marvel went bankrupt. Well, shit, so the I didn't 90s, know that. Yeah, the 90s were a rough time for comics and comic shops. I recently found out my local comic shop, the Fantasy Factory, they had bought the comic shop when the previous owner was getting rid of it because of, like, the big comic crisis. So has that kind of rebounded now that people yeah. are buying and collecting once again? Yeah, yeah, in a lot of ways. Uh, um, I think the classics and stuff like that is, is a lot of what keeps the comic shops open. Not necessarily new stuff because some of it, of it, you know, comes out straight to digital and things like that. And that has an effect like pull boxes aren't the main source of selling comics anymore. It's going to the bins and looking through for classic comics or buying this piece on the wall as an investment. Hmm. That's what keeps a lot of comic shops alive. It's kind of like music in a way, like a lot of record stores have shut down, but a lot of the ones that you see still open do a lot of that trading and they, and they sell a lot of used stuff because people are always not necessarily upgrading, but changing their tastes or they're trying to get rid of certain parts of their collection just so they can get more. And then you just, again, with the digital aspect of things, everything's on streaming services on YouTube, on uh, Bandcamp and stuff like that. So you're not having the same draw to physical media. Yes. And I mean, kind of, yeah, definitely. But at the same time, I've seen some that have been there for years I like to visit up in, uh, I don't know if any of your listeners are familiar with it, but Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, it's, uh, you know, the state above me. It's up in the, what's called the Smoky Mountains, you know, the Appalachians. I like going up there in Gatlinburg and those areas because I love the mountains. I'm not really a beach person. Mm. I just like the wilderness up there. Very black metal. (laughs) But there are a lot of businesses and like business, you know, there's a big strip down Gatlinburg now. And one of the businesses that have been there for years that I've, go to every time i go to gatlinburg is called the rhythm section and it's this music store that's been open for years and that's where i've bought like all my bathery albums on vinyl uh i bought my first testament album there uh first uh immortal album i ever listened to i bought there uh first time i bought a saint vitus record was from there so i mean there's been a lot of stuff i found there just because those guys keep stuff in stock they stay in business and they're in a really good area for that and they cater towards the collector's market and have for years. I mean, they're extremely intelligent people to, get, to have kept that business alive all these years. Totally, especially over COVID. Oh, yeah. Well, they also. I think they also do a lot of sales on eBay. A lot of your comic shops and collectible shops like that, too. Like, uh, there's a local store around here called The Battlegrounds that sells, like, Magic the Gathering, Yu-Gi-Oh!, um, statues, you know, any kind of collectible stuff like that. And they do a lot of sales online, like action figures and things like that. So eBay and their own websites have helped keep them, you know, in business during COVID, especially because down here in the States, you know, we were getting all these uh, relief checks and stuff. And that's a lot of what brought the comic boom up because it was like, oh, well, here's for some people, depending on your job, extra money. Yeah, okay. exactly. Here's $3,000. I'm going to go buy a Daredevil number one and get it graded. Sure. Yep. I'm sure it was the same thing here. Like, I don't know about uh, comics and stuff necessarily, but I know that we were, uh, not we, but um, our government was giving um, basically relief checks, essentially. And sometimes people wouldn't make that at their job. So it not only helped them do some, like, home projects or catch up on bills, but then it also did something negative, and it kind of prevents people from going back. 
Yeah, uh, the biggest part of it's been the inflation and stuff, man. Like, during that period, everybody was stuck at home, so they were doing remodeling stuff, and lumber went up, like, 300% down here. Like, it tripled in price, you know? It went up, or not tripled, it went 300% up. It was crazy. It's starting to come down now, because I'm, like, thinking about doing some building. <laughs> Yeah, just wait until everybody else has their go, and then everything will die down, Drop hopefully. Drop back down, yeah. Hopefully, yeah. But it's been sort of like that with the vinyl, too. Um, mm. I'm just waiting for uh, you know a copy of Agent Orange by Sodom to go down so I can get it on vinyl. How much is it going for right now? It was going for like 100 bucks for you know an OG copy. Yep. I'm kind of hoping it goes down a little bit more than that, because you have to order it from... I have to order my... Where I've seen them, they've always been in like the Netherlands or Greece. Hmm. So you have to pay the ridiculous shipping fees over here to the States and all that. And then you got like the Brexit and stuff over in UK. If I ordered from UK, you know, their shipping rates have changed. I know I messed up some things like with Germany all over, everywhere. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I definitely wasn't a fan of the shipping costs throughout COVID. I, I ended up buying like a bunch of band merch and um, CDs and stuff like that so that I could kind of help support the musicians that I enjoy. One one band that I ordered from was Ruins of Perception and their stuff was awesome. Like I love the album. I love their shirt that I got, but the shipping was crazy. And I didn't I didn't quite expect that, but at the same time it's like, well, most of the money is going to people that actually need it, so I'm totally cool with it. Yeah, no. I mean, and even then a lot of those bands you can buy if the shipping cost is an issue, they've usually got a band camp and you can buy a digital copy just so you you get a digital copy, but you're supporting them in a fashion, so Exactly. And everything counts, right? Nowadays, the music business is not just about going and touring and making your music. Like, it seems like everyone is pushed to do like a merch line or, you know, hot sauce, beer, coffee, all that kind of stuff, because there's so many different facets to it. And the market's so saturated. It's funny you said that, because uh, I know the guys from Grave Buffer, um, they've been on my podcast a couple of times, and I just saw them live over at uh, Tennessee Metal Devastation Fest, which was earlier in October. They actually put on their Facebook, they were like, so uh, if we did a brand of coffee, would you want ground beans or unground? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so I'm probably going to order some Grave Huffer coffee. Fuck yeah. And why not both, right? Yeah, right. No, but yeah, uh, that's one of those bands that's been on the podcast I, I tell people to chat all the time because I really enjoy them. Them and uh, like Titanosaur, Tom Stewart's Dire Wolf. Now, there's a few of them I guess I've probably come, become uh, like sentimental towards because they were early guests too. Mm-hmm. Then I have to promote guys like Kayfabe, who are all friends of mine. So, y'all go check out Kayfabe. They are uh, the uh, rock and I, I call them the punk rock and wrestling connection. They call themselves the uncrowned hardcore champions of uh, music. <laughs> that's awesome. I like that. Yeah, they all dress they... up as wrestlers. Okay, that's how they're tied into wrestling then. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah I like I like the stage game uh, stage theatrics i guess like um, with black metal i used to really dislike the corpse paint but then i started to appreciate it as it's more of like a performance it's more of their personality on stage and the, you have bands like imperial triumphant who wear the crazy masks um shit even like slipknot and stuff like that back in the day when i first uh encountered them it was crazy because i'd never seen anything like that before so at least they're doing something unique and not just playing music right i mean it was it's really all an extension of like uh kiss which is an extension of, like the new york dolls and then a lot of the shock rock mm -hmm. stuff before that you know it's it's all the entertainment business, man. It's so hard to do something different nowadays, though, just because so many things have been explored in the past. But, I mean, the, the wrestling idea is cool, especially if you're into wrestling. You can you can identify with that music uh, quite a bit more, I'd say. Yeah, I, I think it creates some issues for them with gigs, though, because it's such an odd thing to throw into, like, punk and metal you know, scenery. You're not always going to have wrestling fans. So, uh, you know, hope, 
I'd like to see them get some gigs at like uh like the the conventions and stuff, you know, where they do like the conventions with like the old wrestlers signing and stuff like that. And I know I'd like to see that. So if anybody out there has those connections, be sure and check out Kayfabe Punks. That's their uh at handle or whatever you call it on Twitter and everything. It's at Kayfabe Punks. Be sure and check them out. Anybody with any connections, Joe, just hit them up. And you know, um, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I, I guess I promote I promote them so heavily because a lot of them I've I've known since I was in middle school, man. You know. Oh, like before they were in a band, or is this um, were they already going when you? Oh, before they were in Kayfabe. Yeah, no, like okay. they did their first album, and you know, we recorded that here at the house. So I actually got a, a production credit on their album, both their albums. Oh, wicked. That's cool. Oh, so do you do home recording with other bands as well? Uh, you know, when I can find them. Uh, it's a little weird in Georgia, especially where I'm at. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd have to get people coming from Atlanta and stuff like that. I know my wife and I have talked before, like, you know, someday, like, maybe, like, me closer to Atlanta or something like that. I don't know if that'll ever come to be, but, you know. That's always a goal you can have in mind, and then if the if the stars align, definitely take that jump. Yeah, I'm kind of happy in my rut in Dalton. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Kind of how I feel, too. Um, speaking of heavy music, when did you start getting into metal and what drew you to the genre? Oh, um, I was 11 years old. I was playing hooky from school and my grandmother <laughs> said, you're not staying at home today. If you're going to go anywhere, you got to go with your aunt. I said, all right, I'll go with, I'll go with my aunt Pam. Sure. I got in the car and she popped this CD and she goes, listen, this is going to sound really like soft starting out, but give a minute and it'll really hit. Like you'll be surprised. And I heard it and I went, Sounds like fucking ballet music. She goes, give it a minute. Just be patient for the love of God. I said, okay, fine. Then I, all of a sudden I heard this like, I guess my mind back then would have described it as like a roaring sound. And then I heard this really fast, heavy riff come in. And if anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about yet, I'm actually talking about the Ride the Lightning album by Metallica. And I'm talking about Fight Fire with Fire. And that was my introduction to metal. Like the the first like real metal thing I heard that hooked me was fight fire with fire. That's a pretty good way to jump in. That's I got hooked on like thrash right then and there. I mean, I listened to a lot of rock and stuff like that moving forward. Before that, like it was, you know, stuff my grandmother and grandfather listened to, and I had to listen to like my grandmother's old country or my grandfather's. You know, he was into surf rock and the Beach Boys and stuff like that. He's mm -hmm. in Ventures, so I you know I heard a lot of different stuff growing up. And my mom, she listened to like Kiss and ACDC and Def Leppard, but she had never put anything like that on before. And I heard that, it just it just hooked me. Because I was like, how can something start out like that and then turn into this monstrous thing? It was just like this moment of peace and quiet, the serene mood. And then it's just total devastation and anarchy. Totally. <laughs> That's the only way I can describe that. Yeah, and it's a testament to their um, their talent as well because they can mesh those sounds so well. Oh, yeah. I mean, even back then as young guys, you know, they were in like their, what, early 20s on that album? Yep. They were not very old. Not like now. Kill Em All was um, like an insane debut album. Like uh, my first foray into Metallica was like Enter Sandman because it came on the radio. And then once I started digging into the discography, like I listened to Kill Em All and I was like, Jesus, how did I not know this existed? Right? I, I guess insane. I'm kind of and thankful. I'm thankful that's where I started was like the earlier, heavier, heavier stuff like that. It was real fast and stuff because it kind of pushed me in a way 
to go more towards like the early Megadeths and Slayer and like the Anthrax and stuff like that, and which kind of led me into like Venom, and it led me to Death and Black Metal and Death Metal and Extreme Metal in general. Well, it seems like a slippery slope. As soon as you start to get into that chaotic and aggressive type, type music, you kind of crave more. And even if you don't like it at first, it, it grows on you really fast. Oh, no, that's exactly how I felt about Cannibal Corpse the first time I heard them. Um, first album <laughs> I got too. by them was Live Cannibalism, which was probably the worst album to get by them to start with. It was a live album. But, damn, if it didn't just, like, really start pulling me in after a while, I started finding songs I really liked. Like, like you hear, uh, I heard Hammer Smashed Face for the first time, and I heard the riffs on it, and I was like, oh, that's really cool. And, you know, you just look at the song titles and stuff like that. And, like, Meat Hook Sodomy, live or recorded either way, is just absolute low chaos. I mean, it's just low-tuned nuttiness. It's just, it, <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. it, it you, you can't even really process or understand it at times. No, and I think that's just it. Your brain has to kind of switch gears from what it's normally used to hearing. Like you, you, we talked a little bit earlier, there was a little bit of blues in there, uh, pop, country, that kind of stuff. You're used to hearing the traditional way music is put forth. And when you see, when you hear this downtuned or completely changed sound of either guitar or vocals, and then plus the subject matter, the imagery is just like, holy shit, it's like, it's an assault to your senses, really. I think the imagery was what pulled me in because I started to develop this like taste for horror, like horror movies and stuff. Yep. No, so watching like Evil Dead or Hellraiser and shit like that and see something like Cannibal Corpse and it's like, oh, this is about zombies and stuff? Okay, cool. <laughs> I can dig this. I always thought it was interesting when you'd see the album covers and it was so grotesque and, and gory and you're like, how is this allowed? But the funny part is they put the parental advisory at the bottom and you're like, you really don't need that because there's corpses on <laughs> on the cover. Yeah, there's literal zombies giving birth to zombie babies being hung from yeah, exactly hooks. <laughs> I, I bring that one up specifically because that was like one of the first images to catch me too. a lot of it because it had all those like shades of blue and stuff mixed in it and when you see okay. that blue with that red i think it just makes that red pop in like a, a really more disgusting way so mm -hmm. when i was starting my first job working in a carpet mill i was like 18 years old there was a lady at the Warpers, and she gave me crap all the time for, like, my Slayer shirts and stuff like that. So I said, you know what? Got her ass. So I went down to a local store called New York Emporium where they sold a lot of this stuff, like the Cannibal Corpse and shit like that. Yep. And the first thing I grabbed, because I'd seen it, was a long-sleeve Butchered at Birth shirt. And I wore that shirt the next day. She wouldn't even talk or look at me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to get people to leave you alone. It's like, cool, mind your own business, bitch. Did you guys have much of, um, I know the Satanic Panic was like a huge thing in the, I think it was the 90s, but it didn't really affect me as much. I didn't really, I wasn't into super heavy music at that point. But did you guys have a lot of uh, negative reaction to metal or um, heavier music in that time? Uh, you know, I'm 35 years old, so I don't really remember that specifically. Like, I was born in 87. Yeah, me too. I don't really remember the Satanic Panic stuff. Um the biggest one I remember for like a satanic panic and dark arts and magic and stuff was the Magic the Gathering card game. Seriously? I'm serious. Well, I'm, I'm from the South, man. I'm from Georgia. <laughs> Fair enough. We have, okay, so most places it's like there's one store for every two gas stations, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's one gas station for every two churches in Georgia. <laughs> Especially in a small town. You know, uh, I think the Dollar Generals are catching up to them because those are like every seven miles now. Yeah. But, you know, other than that, like, 
No, the Magic the Gathering thing was weird. Um, it was because there was satanic imagery, like there was pan pentacles and stuff like that on cards, demons, you know, be black mana and all that being a source of magic. I guess that can make sense with like necromancy and stuff too. Yeah, so stuff like that popped up, you know, and became an issue. But funny enough, more recently, I, you know, I said I went to that Tennessee Metal Devastation Festival. Yep. I didn't hear a single band not mention opening a portal to hell because one of the local preachers, the Second Baptist Church, had gotten wind of, the, of this thing. He read some lyrics from one of the band's songs and didn't like it. Started a big uproar. Started a bunch of shit. Next thing you know, you've got every woman you can think of with a Karen haircut on there going, they're going to open a portal to hell. They're going to send their children to hell. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I got to see a satanic panic in modern times. That's really interesting. I didn't think that still happened, especially with some of the heavy shit we have coming out now. Like some of it's just purely demonic. It's crazy. <laughs> I mean, some of it's been purely demonic since the 80s, to be fair. That's true. But I guess like where I'm coming from maybe is... um like what people have learned to do with their vo vocals over the years and how they've manipulated their instruments to just continuously sound heavier and heavier. Yeah, but I mean, I could point back to something like Second Deicide album or whatever on a song like, oh, yeah. uh, what, God, what was it? It's the one about the Necronomicon and he had Dead by Dawn. Like the, the vocals on that are just God. They're, they're evil sounding, pure evil. Well, and Deicide's a perfect band if you if you want to go if you want to take your religious beliefs and attack somebody. Deicide's perfect for it because it's literally talking about the death of God. Yeah, that and Morbid Angel. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I mean, I I have no problem with people voicing their opinions and saying like I don't agree with this music. Here's why. But come up with better something better than saying this is going to open a portal to hell. It's like give your head a shake, be realistic, and come up with a good argument. This is going to poison our children. Then pay attention to what your kids listen to. Fuck, watch anything on media. That's just going to poison our children in so many different ways. My three-year-old's got a phone that uh, has no, like, phone access, of course, or anything like that, no data. It just connects to Wi-Fi. But he's got YouTube kids, and that's it. And if we see something on there we don't like, it immediately gets blocked, and I find any related channel or videos to that that we that would be exactly that, and they, they're gone. There's not the same censorship on TV or any kind of media that there used to be. And it used to be like whatever's played on TV is what you get to watch. But now there's like almost unlimited options. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's it's unlimited what you can watch. And, you know, I, I, I'll sit here and watch Paw Patrol, my three-year-old, just sometimes just to make sure, you know? <laughs> no doubt. And those cartoons get so fucking annoying, it's unbelievable. Like the amount of time my daughter spends yelling at me about Coco Melon, I just like... I become borderline suicidal when I have to watch that shit. <laughs> I, I went through that. Uh, you know, it doesn't bother me like I thought it would. I guess because I like cartoons in general, as far as that goes, you know, I've always been a very, like, big a big fan of animation in general. So anytime I can see any kind of animation, I'm usually okay. I think where I find the value in it is it's, it, they, it shows like that do teach them, and they teach them positive, like, positive things. Um like with Coco Melon especially, like, there's like subtitles on the bottom, so she's learning to read. So I'm like, okay, well, if you want to watch TV, at least watch something like this. It's not oh, yeah, the no. same garbage that you'd see in so many other shows, and myself included. Like I tend to turn off TV if I just feel like it's it's not doing the right thing. All right now, I'm yeah now I, I had to get to the point where I like I can't sit and watch Harley Quinn or Peacemaker with my kid. <laughs> you know? Yeah, 
That's true. I love the Harley Quinn animated series. I haven't actually seen it, but um, cartoons are definitely doing a lot a lot of things differently than they used to, and there's a lot of like adult, um, adult cartoons. I don't like saying it like that, but with adult subject matter, and it's stuff that they can't do live, or they can't do with CG because it takes so much money, so animation is the next best thing. And there's so many things you can explore that would just look stupid in a live-action film. I think there's so many things you can explore that would just look stupid in CG. Yeah, that's fair. Of course, I lived through uh, Beast Wars as well, which back then was, you know, revolutionary. Yep. If you try to watch it now, it's just like, oh, God, this is terrible. Yeah, it did not age well. <laughs> no, but back as a kid, man, that was something else. The way that they used to animate movies, too, like in the in the old Disney days when it would be every frame is drawn and you can kind of see the overlapping lines and stuff. There's some sort of charm to it, but animations come so far, whether it be 3D or even just regular 2D cartoons nowadays. It's, it's nuts what they can do. Oh, no, I'm, I mean, I'm a huge fan of, like, Japanese anime stuff like that, so... Like, what's funny is, one of my favorite series is Mobile Suit Gundam, and I love the original one, the 0079 with Armour mm-hmm. Ray and Char Aznable. And the funny thing is, to me, that animation's beautiful. But by comparison to some of the other stuff that was coming out in, like, 79 back then, 78, it's not actually that great. But you can go down the line and watch all the different Gundam series and see how the animation changed. I went from that to eight years later, which is Zeta, and mm-hmm. was that. And it was like a huge improvement. Then you get into the 90s with like Wing or G Gundam or something like that. Then you work your way into Unicorn, which is like 2010. And 2010, Unicorn's beautiful. God, that's some beautiful animation. I definitely have to look some of these up. When I was a kid, I thought, you know, like Dragon Ball with Dragon Ball Z were spectacular. But, you know, I actually yep. went back and watched... Uh, Fist of the North Star, and that's some beautiful, beautiful animation. Especially for its time and, you know, where it was coming from. With a lot of anime, it just, like, draws you in because of the fantastical stories and stuff like that. But another thing that I really enjoy about the anime side of things is there's one for everybody. Like, there's Initial D, if you're into drifting or cars. There's a basketball one. There's stuff about school. Like, a lot of it's not necessarily fantastical, but there's the opposite side of things where it's completely realistic as well. And I think that's the thing about Gundam that brings me in is there's this unrealistic level of there's giant fighting robots but at the same time those robots are brought in in a realistic way you know it deals with the horrors of war and teenagers having to go in and fight war and it was just as a teenager it was like it drew me in it was like wow what a concept you know realistic robots whereas like they've got the one series g gundam and it's just like it's like reading a shonen it's like dragon ball gundam you know (laughs) it's just wacky like I've started getting back into building kits and stuff, and I've been building like Gundam model kits and shit like that again. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, we got way far from metal here. <laughs> <laughs> that's totally cool. If you want to talk about music again, I know that you play the guitar. So when did you get start doing that, and how did you learn? Uh, I started playing a year after I heard my first Metallica song. Uh, my uncle Max brought me a Blue Ibanez RG. Um, I, I think my grandparents couldn't afford it at the time, but he, he showed up one day with that guitar and a little lamp, and I just picked it up and started trying to learn and trying to pick things. Did you often play around uh, with music in the background, or was this something that you were just trying to figure out the ins and outs and how, how the sound was made? Uh, just trying to figure out the ins and outs. I know, like, my mother bought me scale book, a scale ba- book. She brought me a big bag of, like, all kinds of different guitar picks. Uh, like, she brought me a guitar strap and stuff like that. So that's kind of how I picked up was from learning from scale and chord books. 
know, learning those basics. But when I figured out what tablature was, I started reading tablature. And I buy Guitar World and things like that. And I'd, you know, I'd dive into the lessons. Even if it was a musician I didn't really know or care about, you know, I'd dive into the lessons and learn stuff. So I, I just tried to learn everything I could. But as far as like tablature and stuff, I learned a lot of Metallica. As time went, I started to learn a lot of Megadeth and Slayer. I've worked into Anthrax, worked into Testament, uh, Death, all kinds of stuff like that. You know, I, I started figuring stuff out by ear. I know the first thing I figured out by ear was a uh, Black Sabbath song, and I can't remember which one it was. I think it was, uh, I think it might have been Iron Man or War Pigs. One, it was something off of the, it was something off the Paranoid album. It was Electric Funeral. That was the first thing I figured out by ear. Nice. And was that the first song that you really felt that you nailed while playing back? No, uh, it was probably Whiplash by Metallica. Okay. Like, that was nice. pretty early on. That was one of the first guitar solos I learned, too. I, I, you know, looking back and looking at my playing over the years, I don't think I nailed anything perfectly as far as my perspective now goes until I was in, like, my mid-20s, to be honest with you, because I was so, like, hyper-focused on being, like, I wanted to be the greatest lead guitar player ever. Mm-hmm. But then it hit me one day. I was like, well, I could be the greatest lead guitar player ever, but if I don't know how to write a damn riff, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, to sit down and learn all those tablatures, or all the tablature and basically the chords and all that stuff, when you're that young, is pretty impressive. Like, I, I don't think I had the attention span to even try. Uh, it was, and it's funny because I have ADHD, but it was just something that, like, kind of controlled my ADHD, and I was so hyper-focused on because... I was so very passionate about it and it meant so much to me. It was like this place that I could go and I didn't feel like I could be bothered by like you know, school or anything like that. I didn't feel like I was going to be bullied or, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I was, you know, set apart from everybody. Whereas in school, I always had this like weird social anxiety of like, I just don't feel like I'm part of any particular group. And until I found other people that had a like-minded like taste in music and were interested in playing music I don't think I found that. I don't think I had found a you know that grew till like middle school, and once I found that, I felt more like I was part of something there. I think that's like, I think that plays into the podcast too, because I do treat the whole metal scene as a whole, whether it be death metal or power metal or classic metal, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's it's all interconnected to me because it's all rooted from a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, it's just a different people. approach. I treat the entirety of the society that society the same you know how you'd want to be treated yeah exactly they all I have mean, their I, merit you might not necessarily like the style of music but it doesn't mean they're they don't have the quality yeah no absolutely no no the quality's there in a lot of stuff and i've learned to appreciate that over the years and appreciate quality of stuff that I, even i don't like you know like my wife likes billy eilish i don't really care to listen to it but I can sit there and listen to one of their albums with her because I bought them all for her on vinyl. Yeah. And I can appreciate, like, the recording quality. I can appreciate certain effects. I can appreciate how, like, maybe there's a certain beat where there's a vocal sits in the background a little more. Just little stuff about the production and things like that. I heard this on the Jocko Willink podcast, but it's, he's talking about going out with his wife, and he said, um, you know, I could have a bad time because I don't like what I'm doing or what is planned. But that's just me. He's like, I have a good time because I'm with my wife. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because you're, 
you're trying to look for something to appreciate in it, even if it's not your taste. And I think yeah, that's really no. important because it gives you a better outlook on life and it overall makes you more positive. Well, you know, and I'm not going to like, I don't want to say anything negative about any guest or anything. There's times I'll get like an EPK or I'll get another album and I have a hard time finding something that maybe that particularly I enjoy. You know, and that's just natural, but I have to find the positive things about people's music so I can bring it out and accentuate those things to other people. And hopefully, you know, I'm opening some perspective for other people that might not like that music and maybe they find something about it they like. So it opens exactly. the door for them. So Everyone starts somewhere. So, I mean, if it's their first or second album and there's a lot of things in there that you don't necessarily like, it doesn't mean they're not going to progress or that they're not learning. It's just that's where they are in, their, in that stage. And they're obviously going to be sitting there building on what they've built in the past. Yeah, no, I can't say anything about recording quality. I've got like the first four Bathery albums over here, so. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't just play guitar, though. You also play the bass, right? Uh, yeah, I play bass. Uh, I, I say all the time I can't find a bass that I like more than a Thunderbird, you know? Mm -hmm. For some reason, I just, I've grown attached to the Thunderbird bass, and I cannot find another bass that I enjoy as much. I, I've played everything I can find in every store. And there's just like nothing, even the most expensive stuff. It's just like, I can't find anything, but yeah, no, I, I play bass. I I'd, I'd say a lot of the influence from that was just growing up being a Metallica fan. And like, there's this aspect of Metallica with Cliff Burton back in the early days or even Newstead. And I just, I, I said, you know what? I'm going to start learning that. And it kind of turned out that me and some buddies, my buddy, Matt said, uh, we're going to do a, we're going to do a trailer show over at my house, man. I said, we're going to do a trailer show. He said, yeah, my house, man. We're going to do a trailer show. I said, what are we, what are we playing? He goes, we're going to do uh, Metallica. We're going to do it for Halloween. We're just going to do uh, Metallica songs. And we called it Matt-Tallica that night. <laughs> nice. So I, I learned uh, like half of Cliff Burton's repertoire that you know next few months learning Metallica songs. So that was almost like born out of necessity then. Yeah, in a sense. I, I'd always had an interest in bass since I was in like middle school. Like, it was another instrument to learn. I've got a I've got a ukulele over here, and I've actually learned a few things on it. I know during the pandemic, I got so bored one day, I actually figured out the theme song to The Office on the ukulele. <laughs> That's awesome. But you don't just play multiple instruments. You uh you also have like your solo project called In Infernal Tyrant, and you got you I was gonna say you guys, but you just released an album this year. Yeah, um, Fallen from Grace. So the Infernal Tyrant name itself, I I think it came out of like this like it's goofy as hell too i was at work one day and i had drank a bang have you ever had a bang i have not okay uh <laughs> that is a heck of an energy drink they're made by redline i was tired that day the bang did not do me any favors because once i crashed from that thing i said to myself jesus christ this must be what this must be what satan felt like when he fell down from heaven and hit the earth and i was like that makes some cool lyrics what about some lyrics about that and i was like and I just kind of like scribbled something out, wrote the lyrics out, and I actually started coming up with the lyrics for the song Infernal Tyrant. I came up with the title Infernal Tyrant, and I said, well, that would be a cool band name. I was like, well, maybe that's too on the nose doing the Black Sabbath thing, you know, song named after the band. And, uh, you know, I just kind of played with it for a while, and I wound up, I just really liked that title, that name. So it's all born out of that goofy-ass shit of me standing there at a fucking Tufted machine drinking an energy drink and <laughs> crashing from it yeah so inspiration hits in all kinds of weird places did you expect it to stay as a one-man show then 
Yeah, no, I mean, I don't plan on playing gigs or anything with it. Okay. No, I, I've got a kid and a wife and a job, and I run the podcast, so I stay pretty busy. A little too busy to have a full-time band. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I, I, I think it, you know, you said necessity earlier, and I keep thinking to myself, the Infernal Tyrant kind of came as a necessity thing because after my son was born, I kept fooling around with my old band a little bit, and it just got to the point where I was like, I can't really do this. Everybody's schedules are jacked up. I have to change my schedule at work. So I just kind of hit the point where I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. So I, I don't think I picked the guitar up for a year after that. There was a lot of issues like the old band, like the record label. We could get the album out and stuff. And then one day during the pandemic, I just sat there and I was like, I'm going to play some guitar. And I picked up and I started writing and I wrote what would become insurrection. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that it would be that song at the time, but it sat there for a couple of months. And then I came back and I was like, well, you know, a lot of guys that record their own music and just do it as a one man project. And, you know, I'd always joke around about the, the one man black metal band joke. <laughs> and they're, they are alive and well. Yes, absolutely. The, the pandemic did not hurt them at all. Um, and I, I kind of thought, well, I could probably do something like that, but I'd want to do it more like thrash. Like, well, fuck it, let's do it. So I started writing stuff, and I wrote, uh, I wrote Wave of Violence. I had Insurrection sitting around, and I wrote Infernal uh, Tyrant. And I had those three tracks, so I recorded them, sent them to a buddy of mine, had him do the drums, put them out as the god-awful demos that they are. <laughs> they are god-awful production <laughs> quality. I was learning at the time. But, uh, and I just wrote five or six other songs and I picked like the ones I liked the most and just kind of put them together. And the music part came easy. Like, I think I wrote most of the music in like two or three months. Like it just, it came easy just in spare time. It was like the lyrics, God, I hate writing lyrics. Like, I'm not going to lie to you. This next album, I'm probably going to relegate myself to background vocals and like backing stuff with the type of vocal I do just because it's it's such a hard thing to keep up with you know with all the stuff that I do I can't really dedicate time to go okay I need to practice vocals now I need to practice mm. I'm probably going to get a, another singer to take over for me and just kind of do backing vocals and stuff like that and maybe little parts here and there but I think it it'll also open up you know another aspect of music that musicality that I can add to the the music Definitely. And I think being able to have that self-awareness to be like, I can't dedicate everything I want to this one aspect is pretty impressive, especially when you're pulling yourself back. And so you can focus a little bit more on the, the, the bass or the guitar. And then, like you said, lyrics aren't really, and maybe I'm saying this wrong, but maybe lyrics aren't your strong point. So putting that in the hands of somebody who is used to it and can focus all their time and energy on the vocals and the lyrics themselves would definitely do Infernal Tyrants more of a justice. And I, I think that's why I'm getting Billy. He was in, uh, he was the singer and rhythm guitar player for uh, Alviant, which was an old okay. band. Yep. And I'm, I'm getting Billy to do that because I know Billy can do it. I like his vocal style. He can get a little bit like harsher with his vocals to get sort of a growl. And I can add to that in the background to certain parts. So I feel like as a team, I think we'll be better off with that. You know, just adding that one person in and letting loose a little bit of freedom. Because it became such a stressful thing, like, writing lyrics. Like, I felt so stressed out with it, and I wasn't having fun and enjoying myself. 
Whereas when I started doing this, I was like, I'm doing this because I want to do it because I enjoy music. But I'm not necessarily a fucking poet. Well, and if you're not enjoying the as uh, that any aspect of the music, it's going to translate through the music and it's going to be uh, maybe not obvious, but it's going to show at least to you and you're not going to be happy with the product that you put out. Yeah, no. No, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm happy with the product I put out, but no. Reading through some of the reviews and stuff, I try not to let them negatively impact me, but I do see some constructive criticisms when I get them. And I'm like, you know what? That guy's actually right on this. This could be better. And I... I I want a product that I put out to be the best it can be. There's the podcast or the music with Infernal Tyrant, whether I'm recording, uh, you know, a Fabe's next album or whatever. I want it to be the best quality it can be. Now, and I've, I've made a lot of strides as far as my own production work goes, as far as mixing and things like that. Like I'll probably shoot the tracks out to somebody else to master this time. Cause on this one, I mixed, mastered, recorded and wrote and sung and programmed drums and everything. And that was all done in your home studio, right? Yeah, that was all done right here in the house. What kind of setup do you have to have to do all that stuff? Like, I know for the podcast, I just have uh, basically my DAW and my software. So, uh, obviously the mic too. But it it seems like it's a lot more involved than, than what a podcast would be. A lot of it is, uh, like, I've got an 8-channel interface that I use for, like, recording drums if I want to do live drums with somebody. Mm -hmm. Of course, I have to get them over here, get them to plug up set up their kit get all the mics set up that's a lot of work that's a lot of that's a big learning process learning to record drums but if you have a good drummer with a good set who can you know play well knows when to do something when not to do something it's a lot easier luckily i do know two very talented drummers offhand so i could do that um you now you can do a lot of your drums and stuff programming i think the drums is probably the biggest aspect and the hardest aspect of all this the I think for me, the easiest aspect was uh, finding guitar tones because I just experimented. Like, whether it was I'm going to use an amp and some pedals or I'm going to use a program on my computer. Like, I used Amplitude for all of the Fall from, Fallen from Grace album. Like, that's all, like, computer program guitar tones. The paying's real, but the tones are, you know, simu simulator. Interesting. I didn't know that even existed. Yeah, no, um, like Amplitude's great. Um, oh, God, what's some of the other ones? Uh, there's one, Axe Effects. There's, there's one guy I had on the podcast just to, when I recorded today, he uses Axe Effects, and I was blown away at tone he got on his album. I think it was Than Resmussen. But I was blown away at what he did with that. It, phenomenal. Um, you, you just have to find the things that work for you. Like now I've moved into using, I just got a 5150. So I'm using that, and I've got an SM57 in front of it, and that's all I'm using, and I use my pedal board for that. It's a lot of learning where to set microphones, um, you know, putting some acoustic stuff up for sure, learning which part of my room I can record in. But if you think back to a lot of, like, classic rock albums and recordings and stuff, like, when Bottom recorded the drums for When the Levy Breaks for Led Zeppelin, he recorded that at the bottom of a stairwell. And he had two condenser mics set up at the top of the stairwell. So that drum sound you hear on that album is just two condenser mics and his drum set at the bottom of a stairwell. He got this amazingly massive sound. Interesting. So the, the sound was probably amplified by the stairwell itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, no, it, it did. It got all the reverb, too. You know, you have a lot of reverb in a stairwell like that. 
though. I mean, it had the echo and the delay and things like that just off of the room. You know, there was like a compressor and that was it. Like a couple of microphones, a compressor going into the mixing board. So when you were talking about like the placement of the mics, it it's part of it's getting that right sound for that instrument. But part of it, I'm assuming, is making sure that the mic doesn't pick up the other instrument as well. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, if you're recording everything in a separate environment like that, like a lot of it, like I'll record guitar tracks separate. Like when I had Kayfabe come in, I had Danny do the, or, uh, excuse me, I have to use fake names here. I have to use their names. <laughs> the stage name. I had Sean Mickles playing the drums while I had uh, Peyote Jody, which is a Cactus Jack joke there. I love it. <laughs> he, <laughs> he was uh, He was plugged up with his guitar running through a board and I had a head set of headphones going over to uh, Sean and he would uh, you know, play along with him. So we had the drums done live like that along with the guitars and then the bass came in. We had the bass record, did all this stuff in separate sessions. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of that's done in separate sessions. Like you see like video Metallica, you know, sitting in that room together and they're all recording like that. You don't get that all the time with a lot of recordings. Like with Alviance, we got to do that with Tommy Stewart because his studio was set up for that. Now mine's not mine's not set up for that, unfortunately. Um, if I ever had the money and space to do that, it it would be. I'd have a separate amp room for each amp, a uh, separate drum room, all that stuff. Do you think there's anything lost in music when uh, members are playing separately? Yes and no. Uh, you, you can lose some of that live out, uh, element depending on how you uh, go at it. I think the methods we took with Kayfabe kept a lot of the live element there because we had a guitar player playing, you know, into a set of headphones for the drummer. Whereas if you had the drummer come in and do his parts with like a metronome, you can lose some of the live elements and some of that live raw energy. Mm. But at the same time, when you're recording an album versus like playing live, they're two very different environments. And with an album, you want it to be, you know, as, as polished as you can get it, with a, still with a sense of energy and rawness. You know, you have to play with energy. They that's the big thing they say is play with energy. So you have to be energetic in your playing. As long as you stay with that, you can get a nice polished, you know, good sounding album. That's at the end of the day. That's a lot of what you want if you want to uh, reach a wider audience because you want a recording that's going to be as pleasing as possible to their ears. You know, most people are not going to sit there and go, "Yeah, man, you know, uh, have you heard this uh, Death Crush by Mayhem?" <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You know, the recording quality that's absolutely terrible. Like the first Bathory album. Like I don't know how Venom got as far as they did back in the day. Uh, there was just obviously something really spectacular about them to their audiences and stuff because the recording quality and hell, even the playing was not necessarily there. Well, and some people are drawn to that. I find that like a lot of uh, old school black metal artists, I mean, there's definitely more, but a lot of old school black metal had that, that raw, unpolished feel to it. And for me, it didn't work out so well, but I know people that really love that aspect of it. And I do too, actually. Um, you know, there's, there's certain artists, man, it, it works for them. It creates a different vibe and atmosphere to their music. You know, it works for some people and it doesn't for others, but I, I think in general, a lot of bands are going to try for the you know best recording quality possible. Without losing that live uh, feeling, like you said, like it can't be all studio magic because then when you play live, it's not going to sound anywhere near what you what your album sounds like. Right. But I mean, there's certain bands, I think, in a sense. I know uh, a lot of people don't like Pantera. 
and I get that. I get a lot of the negative connotation towards them. But uh, now there was a lot of studio magic on their albums, and their live performances were very, in a way, different, but at the same time, very true to the albums. So I think a band like that really showed, you know, how you can kind of bridge the gap between the two. And I think Van Halen did too. Because okay. you listen to a studio recording versus, you know, a live recording, there's, you know, there's going to be some big differences there. You're not going to have like, you've got one guitarist. So Eddie's going to be having to fill in all this stuff. He's going to do his leads. There's not going to be a rhythm under it. There's just going to be the bass and the drummer covering the rhythm. And in that case, you have to have a really good bass player and drummer. Well, yeah, they have to make up for what's missing, right? Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you know, I, I think that's the the beauty of it, too, and there, there's some magic to that. I don't really want to go see a band and watch them play it 100% like the album. Like, I like a little bit of the spontaneity live, and that's what gives the, the live performance energy is the spontaneity. Mm -hmm. Well, and the, and the changes they can make, too, whether it's banter with the audience, whether it's um, elongating a song or even transitioning from one song to another, it's it's cool because they have the chance to kind of ad-lib in a way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, th I think that's the magic of a live album versus a studio album. I think that's what makes uh, the comparison to Metallica, you know, to their live albums back in the live stuff back in the day, such a big thing. Um, I think that's what Bob Rock saw when he, they did the black album too. He saw how they were live and he wanted to capture that. And that's why they recorded the way they did, you know, together in a room, they separated Hetfield putting his amps in those, uh, what he called his uh, cabinet coffins, stuff like that. It's got to take a lot of um, experience to be able to kind of identify what you want to see in an artist, and then have have like have them make those changes and going in a positive way, I guess. Yeah, no, it does for sure. Uh, I, I think the only upside for me, as far as like the home recording and thing like that, is I've listened to so much music and studied so much of it over the years that it's played into me being able to learn stuff and pick it up a little bit quicker mm -hmm. and how long have you been doing that for mixing well the, the recording part for you know probably about like a year and a half two years okay. the mixing part when I did the full length album I guess I'd been studying mixing for like six months but the information's there and so readily available too you learn the, the guidelines it makes things a lot easier and you have to put in place what you've learned too. You can't just read it and then put it to the side. Like everything is in. In, anyways, I lost my train of thought on that. So let's. Oh, you're cool. No, I get what you. I get what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Like you have certain guidelines in place. There's certain certain stuff you're gonna do. You have to take the things you know that works and use those. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, you can you can experiment too, though. I mean, it's fine too. That's just it. You can experiment all you want, and then when you find something that works for you and the band that you're working with then you can put it out but as long as you guys have that collaborative relationship i think it's important yeah absolutely uh, at the end of the day you just have to use your ears and you know, find what sounds right i think bands also need to make sure that they defer to people that are in mixing and mastering as well because they might have one vision or one version of their music that they want to hear but people that are doing the mixing mastering have that experience under their belt they know kind of what sounds better overall and how the music will be impacted by what they're doing oh yeah absolutely that's like a that's a big problem in recording actually that's another reason i probably hadn't taken on so many bands is because it's like i don't really want to deal with these assholes sometimes <laughs> you know well ego doesn't do anything positive for anybody so 
Yeah, but you also have to be careful of the ego of the the person that is recording and mixing too, as well. You know, it goes both ways. That's true. It's always a middle you know, ground. That's for sure. Yeah, you have to find a middle ground, and both parts have to be flexible. How many bands have you worked with over the years? Uh, honestly, just a couple, really. Um, it's just been a couple of uh, as far as like recording and stuff like that, mm -hmm. or just playing. Uh, recording, it's just been a couple. I mean, it's finding time to do it, and I got so busy with my own stuff, it was like I'm not going to hunt down a bunch of others. And just right I now, know we touched I, on this. I stay so Sorry. busy. No, I just I'm saying I stay so busy with the podcast and everything else right now. Yeah, and because you're so busy with all that stuff, what what was the driving force behind podcasts? I know we kind of touched on it earlier, but what inspired you to do it? Um, well, I'd recorded the first Kayfabe album, and I had all the gear. So I, I just kind of looked and said, you know, I've got the gear to do this. Let's give it a shot. I, I was a big fan of uh, wrestling uh, manager Jim Cornette, who has a podcast. Has two podcasts, actually. And I uh, I was so hooked on his show, and I was like noticing that he would talk about other things besides wrestling sometimes. He'd deviate and do this and talk about that. I was like, I can cover music, but I can also be able to you know be flexible and talk about other things, too. Like I feel like I could do this. And I literally just jumped into it. I just, I was like, I got the gear, let's give it a shot. And it's been one big learning process the whole time. Seems like every episode I'm learning. So I can assume, I can only assume that it's the same for you. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, I jumped into this with like very little information. Luckily, um, I had friends that did some podcasts. Um, they do a horror podcast called Rants from the Black Lodge. They, uh, you know, Brandon from there has been so experienced with it. Uh, one of the co-hosts, Scott, he said, man, just message Brandon and ask him. He'll tell you how you need to go about this, that, and the other. So I had some, you know, like, had a person I could talk to and ask questions. That was one of the big things was like, that, that helped out a lot. So, you know, I, I, I do owe some, some to, I, you know, I owe some uh, gratitude to Brandon for that. He did a great job with that. And they actually just ran an ad for my podcast on theirs. So kind of acted as like a sounding board for you then. Yeah, absolutely. No, yeah. I didn't ask him an awful lot. You know, I, I like to independently learn, too. You know, I like to go, and I'll, I've been reading, like, forums, and I'd get on, like, I signed up for Buzzsprout, and they have so much information on there that you can learn from that I, I kind of gravitated towards that. Since then, it's been finding my groove and finding how I fit into this and how I fit into the podcasting world, you know, just finding my little corner of it. Another assumption on my part is that you chose metal specifically because that's basically what you've been enjoying for most of your life. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it was easy to do. You know, it's something, if there's anything I know a lot about, it's probably, it's uh, the most about it, it's probably metal. Mm -hmm. You know, outs uh, outside of that, it's like comics and, uh, you know, I know a lot about wrestling and stuff and anime and things like that. It's nerdy stuff, so that's where the nerd portion of it comes in, but... You know, the metal part's the main focus. And I know enough about music in general that I can talk to about just about anybody about music. I can kind of get out there and I can talk to most anyone. I can, you know, I've had the, I have the ability to sit there too and, I, you know, kind of listen to what they have to say about it as well. So that's made it a lot easier with the podcast because, you know, I learned to listen and not just talk, talk my head off, you know? Well, and that, 
that's one of the biggest things with podcasting and and sometimes I don't do a good enough job of it but it's it's learning to understand what the person's saying I guess it's the same as any conversation really it's it's active listening you're wanting to make sure that you're understanding what the other person is saying and then respond in kind like you don't want to just have those pre-written questions and just you know who is your band when did it start let's talk about your new album and your tours I find that's such a big thing with a lot of metal sites yeah yeah we're talking about that messaging on Twitter and it, it, it does become a bit like stale and annoying and I felt like at a point there was a point where I was like I'm asking a lot of the same stuff. I need to open up and add new things, try new things, try this, try that. One of the newer things I've tried was uh, I would ask the artist, I would be like, so just imagine I'm someone that hasn't heard your EP, hasn't heard a bit of your music. How would you sell your music to me? Let's say you saw me and I was wearing a Judas Priest shirt if you're playing traditional metal. How would you sell your music to me? You know, just things like that. And yeah, I... I, I <laughs> That's another thing that's come to me from, like, listening to Jim Cornette and being such a big wrestling fan. Like, when I look at, like, managers in wrestling, that's kind of how I treat my role is, like, I'm a manager for a wrestler. A good manager in wrestling, their job is to accentuate strengths of the person that they're uh, they're bringing out. Their job is to make, to, to draw heat from the audience a lot of times, like the, you know, the anger and stuff of the fans. They have to draw that towards them and then somehow transfer it over to the person with them. That's what a good manager does in wrestling. Hmm. So I'm not necessarily trying to draw heat for someone's, you know, someone's anger or anything like that. I'm just trying to draw their interest and I'm trying to transfer that over. That's what I feel I have to do as a podcaster. I, I treat it like I'm being a wrestling manager. I've, I haven't thought about it that way, but there is a lot more to it than just asking questions. Like, like you touched on, in order for it to remain engaging and not become stale you have to find something that draws people in and a lot of it is that personality that comes out through these conversations yeah no absolutely um and i i i i, I just hit me too i was like another thing i keep in mind is maybe if i don't get the most listens on that episode if i can get some interaction on like twitter or instagram or facebook i can get shares people viewing it people seeing it Maybe they'll just go check out the band too. And that's the end goal for me is like, hopefully they just go check out the band. Yeah, I would definitely say that's one of my goals. Um, when I started this thing, I just decided, you know, when I go to concerts, I'd like to engage with the band. Uh, like I briefly touched on earlier, like on metal or at metal concerts, you have a good opportunity to see people in the crowd. But I think that if you're able to flush out that personality a little bit more and, and have that engagement with them, it kind of, again, humanizes them. It, you really feel part of that community and if you're able to give that to other people it helps them check out the band it gives them more publicity but it also shows that there's more to them than just the music yeah no absolutely that's uh that's a, that's that's what we're here for you know like i said the initial goal was uh to kind of give these bands an opportunity too yeah starting a podcast you're starting out with zero listeners so of course the first guests that you're going to have they're they're kind of taking a chance on you um how did you go about seeking your first guests um, I literally asked the band that I just recorded. <laughs> nice. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so everything just, something came into, fell into place. Uh, the, the stars aligned and things worked out because, you know, it was like, we're all wrestling fans. We're all metal fans. Okay, let's do it. And that was your first episode then? Yeah. Yeah. That was the, I mean, I I'd tried recording a few before that and just kind of seeing, you know, learning as a learning experience and they never got released but uh you know the first episode that actually got released was kayfabe 
I'm scrolling down here now. I haven't, I've listened to quite a few of your episodes, but I don't think I went all the way back. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that's one that I haven't listened to, so saving to my yeah. library right now. It's it's a bit of an oddball episode compared to every other episode, because not only do we talk about kayfabe and talk about music and stuff, but we also, and it's a longer episode too, we also, uh, we reviewed and watched Ric Flair's last match, Shawn Michaels, before he retired. Oh, cool. So that was, that's one of the very unique things that separates it from the rest of the podcast. Yeah, it seems like every every podcast that I listen to has something special. Like, it's not just about the music. Um, another one that I really like is uh, Lingua Brutalica. And they, they are sociolinguists, so what they try and do is they're trying to learn about lyrics and metal through the artists. And I thought it was such a cool, unique way to do things um, because they're actually using this in their career in academia. Uh, yeah, I actually had a similar guest. Um, he sent me a copy of his book and everything. Um, Bill Irwin, I don't know if you've heard of him, he wrote a book called The Meaning of Metallica, Ride the Lyrics. And he actually, from a philosophical standpoint, analyzed all of Metallica's lyrics and brought them into philosophy. That was actually one of the first episodes of yours that I listened to, and it was it was very enjoyable. Um, it's really cool that people can establish careers just on metal itself or even a specific band. Well, what's funny about him is it wasn't even just metal. Like if you look at his like career before that, he was a he's a you know a philosophy professor and literature professor, but he also wrote books about the Matrix and uh, the Sins and Seinfeld, and you know all from a, philo a philosophical standpoint. So. He was a really unique guest to have because he wasn't my usual like you know having a band on so mm -hmm. i I, re I really had to like go an extra mile to prepare for that and luckily i've spent enough time in my life reading and studying philosophy that it was a little bit easier to work with him it's not always easy to prepare for interviews with people that aren't involved in music like podcasts are cool music's cool but if it's someone that's kind of under the radar and doesn't really have a social media presence or just a, a presence online that uh, it's a lot more difficult because you have to dig a lot deeper. And it, it can be a bit more difficult to sell too. And it kind of goes against the, like, I think anybody knows that anytime we bring an artist on, you know, we're bringing them on too, not just to talk about their music, but, you know, we're kind of looking for the rub from the audience to come and listen to us. You've got a wide variety of music here too. And then you, you also do some, um, like roundtable discussions with a couple of your friends. Like there was uh, the early works of Iron Maiden, which is one of your newest episodes. What made you go that route instead of just having like one guest on? It's uh, like, I mean, like I said in the episode, it's literally just something that kind of helped me unwind a bit you know, from the usual. I feel like the usual of the podcast is I get a band on and I interview them and this gave me an opportunity to sit there and talk about like a band that, you know, we as a group of friends just all appreciate and love. You know, I've seen them twice. Hell, I quit a job to go see them one time. <laughs> That's awesome. So, <laughs> you know, it was just one of those situations where it was like kind of a favor too, because, you know, we talked about it before and my buddy kept bugging me. Dwayne kept going, So, when are we going to do that Iron Maiden episode, huh? When are we going to do that Bruce Dickinson years, huh? When are we going to do that? And I was like, Let me work on it and figure it out and get some things changed around about the whole idea and we'll get to it. And that's kind of where that led is we decided to finally do it. And, you know, he kind of wanted to do it too because he was excited about it. I know he told his daughter and stuff that, oh, well, I want to be on a podcast. And she was like, okay. So, you know, it just, it was one of those things. Plus it was 
it was one of those things where I could talk about a more major act too and kind of, you know, reach out to that audience. Cause I've had so many more, uh, like in recent months, like the new wave of traditional heavy metal bands on mm-hmm. it, it seemed to fit the subject matter too. So I thought to myself, well, if I can bring people in that like Iron Maiden, hopefully they'll check out some of the other bands and they'll check out some of these new wave of traditional heavy metal bands, like incursion or emissary. And they'll really enjoy that. You also took a really cool approach to that because you kind of individually rated the first seven albums in the Iron Maiden discography, and then you had to do that with the other two guys. So it was, I don't want to say it was cutthroat, but at the end, there was a little bit of disagreement as to which belonged where, and I thought that was really cool. Well, I've known those two guys for years. Like, Matt, I've known him since freaking middle school. So, you know, there's been times we've been at each other's throats many a times. <laughs> uh, you know, and Dwayne, I've known him a long enough time that I know what's going to piss Dwayne off, what, you know, what's going to get him going, what's, maybe, maybe, maybe I need to rile him up right now, let's get him riled up, or, you know, either one of them like that, I know how to get him riled up and get him going. So I think it created something, (laughs) I think it created an interesting conversation between the three of us. Well, and you all had valid points, like, you were able to point out what you liked, what you didn't, and why it belonged in a certain order, but on the other side of it, you guys were able to agree on most things by, like, compromising, I guess is a good way to put it. Yeah, and I think that's the beauty of doing something like that with friends is, you know, we've all known each other so long, we can kind of just compromise. And, you know, we're going to do another one out here soon, actually. I, I think it's going to kind of become a series. I've got it written down and somewhere which one we were going to do. Give me just a second. I can find that for you. I've just got to open up mess. Got a little group chat we were talking about. I think we just, oh, yeah, we just decided we were going to do, like, just Priest on this next one. Yeah, so, I mean, we're just kind of digging through some of the classic bands like that, and I've got one scheduled with somebody um, hoping to get done soon. We're going to do, uh, we're going to do, uh, we're just going to do the whole discography of Death, because there's only like seven, eight albums there, and try and dig to the point where we've got, like, this is the best Death album, which is hard for me, because I think they have the perfect discography. There's not a bad Death album. And so you wouldn't be able to, at this point argue which one is the best or order them in any meaningful way i I can and i can't like there's ones that are sentimental to me like scream bloody gore is very sentimental sentimental to me because it's one of my first death albums and so is uh individual thought patterns Mm -hmm. because that was like first death track i heard was the philosopher and like my favorite one as far as the energy and overall production and things like that and was uh sound of perseverance but at the same time, you know, there's like such a connection to all those albums because they're all so good. And I've listened to all of them at such different points in my life, you know, and gotten hooked on certain points of spiritual healing. You know, around the time before my son was born, I got hooked on spiritual healing. The hard one would be Bathory. <laughs> like going through their early stuff for me. How many albums did they put out? I haven't heard anything from, a, from them in a long time. Bathory? Yeah. Uh, now I can't remember the exact number, but Quarthon died in like 2002. Okay. So, yeah, they hadn't put anything out since then. So that was one of those things where um, the loss of a member did actually stop the band. Yeah, because he was pretty much the band. Oh, shit. Same with... Yeah, he was the only guy. I just looked this yeah. up. I, I didn't realize that at all. Same with Death. I mean, Chuck Schuldiner was Death. And then you've got like the tribute band that's going now that uh called Death to All. 
that does that, and it's comprised of like former death members, but you know, it's not just called death because that would be like an insult Chuck, really. Yeah, I kind of like how they're paying homage to him by incorporating the name and the music, but it's it's their own thing. Yeah. Well, it. You know, I, I I'd like to think some of that probably came from what Dweezil Zappa did with his dad's work. Uh, have you ever heard of Frank Zappa? Mm-hmm. His son Dweezil went and he recreated like every guitar tone for every like song Frank had ever written. He like he went and got the gear and all that stuff. And it was such a meticulous, it was such a meticulous process, and he would bring that to a live, you know, show, and he'd play Frank stuff. But he went through such work; it's like, you know, he's paying homage to his father. It's it's a, it's a beautiful thing to see. Well, yeah, and then when they're doing that kind of thing, they're not just riding on the coattails of the those that came before them as well. Yeah, no, and um, I think who else has done that? I'm, actually, I'm starting to think of the ones that I, I don't really care for. Like, they were talk. I don't know if they actually did it, but they talked about the you and Dio tour, but with a hologram of Dio. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'd like that, but... I don't care for that. Um, I don't know that I particularly care for the quote-unquote Pantera reunion. Because neither of the brothers are there, so it's just like... Even though Charlie Bonani yeah. of Anthrax is an amazing drummer, and he was friends with those guys, and same with Zach... Zach Wilde was friends with Dime. They were like best friends, but I don't know. It's kind of hard to call it a reunion tour if the members aren't there. Yeah, I mean, like Phil and Rex are there, but, you know, about it. You know, one one band that I think is doing a really cool thing with their continuation is Black Dahlia Murder because uh, Trevor passed away and... They took a little bit of time to kind of reorient themselves and to see what's going on. And then one of the other members took up the mantle of vocalist. And I really like that because he was part of the band before. And they're not trying to overwrite him or they're not trying to do the same thing that Trevor used to do. But at least it's they're paying homage to him. They're making sure that it's still respectful, that it's still like in the same vein, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I'd actually seen them live a long time ago. Oh, fuck. They were nuts live. I actually saw them go on before Carcass, and yeah, they were fucking nuts. <laughs> if people have listened to my episodes before, they know that I'm that I really gravitate towards death metal and tech death, and I just think like Black Dahlia Murder is such a staple in that world, and I'm glad that they're going to continue. But I'm also glad that they didn't just bring on somebody random. Right? No, no, that's a very important thing too. Is they didn't just bring somebody, you know, elite outsider. You know, like Queen did, bringing in freaking Paul Rogers. Yeah, and then they did. Uh... This is obviously more recent, but Adam Lambert was the vocalist for Queen for a while there when they were doing now, the, t- the tours, weren't they? No, and we don't need that. No. Don't, we didn't need Paul Rogers. We don't need him. I mean, not going to replace Freddie Mercury, and I don't really care to hear anyone cover his songs, except maybe occasionally Blind Guardian. I, I think Blind Guardian's one of the few bands that's done a Queen song that I was really like pleased with their cover. I didn't realize that they covered a Queen song. Uh, is that relatively new? No, it's from the early 90s. Hmm. Just during the summer far beyond years. Um, it would it was uh, Spread Your Wings. Okay. Yeah, yeah, go check that out. I'm a huge Blind Guardian fan. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, um, what do you think of their new album? Oh, I love it. I actually bought the box set, too. Oh, cool. Yeah, anytime they, it, it, like, them or Creator, anytime they have a new album come out, and I can get it on vinyl, and I can get it in a box set form, I'm getting it. I've got... 
the past two creator albums in box set form. So nice. Uh, Blind Guardians a little bit, you know, they're not as close with their releases as like Creator is. So yeah, but they've been around for a long time as well. Oh yeah, since like '85, they started out as Lucifer's Heritage. Yeah, I've actually been hunting down. I'm trying to find like one of their first singles from the Noise Years. Um, God, I can't remember which one it was now. They they put out a, a couple of singles at one point. I think I think it was uh, Banished from Sanctuary. But I'm trying to find it in uh, the 45 RPM version. It's been kind of hard to find and a little bit expensive. Yeah, I bet. Especially from being that, uh, being from that time period. Yeah. Uh, the hardest thing to get from them that I, I, I'm not going to spend on is uh, Memories of a Time to Come. It was a limited edition vinyl box set. And it included like all of their demos as Lucifer's Heritage on a single vinyl that'd be awesome like as a collector to have yeah i know i mean as a collector yeah i'd love to have that but uh i'm it's like five six hundred dollars now and i'm not paying that <laughs> yeah the world's changed when it comes to demos and stuff like that they used to do uh cassette trading and i thought that was really cool when i learned about it just being able to send tapes back and forth with more than one band on the tape i think it's such a cool like personal way to do things oh yeah no no it, it really is uh, one of the cool things about one of the creator box sets, um, God, I'm trying to remember which album it was. It's one of the, oh God, Satan is Reels on it. It's not their most recent. It's not Hate Uber Alice. It's the one before that. Gods of Violence? God, yes, Gods of Violence. There we go. I don't know why I was drawing a blank. Probably because I've done three podcasts before this today. Yeah, I think you're crazy for doing that, by the way. Uh, well, you know, uh, it's no worse than the seven interviews I did in one day. I couldn't even imagine. And I talk a lot and I would be tired. Yeah, I, I'm starting to feel it a little bit, but I'm okay. <laughs> the, the sinus drainage is the worst part right now because the weather has changed constantly in Georgia. Um, but it, the Creator Box set actually has a uh, a cassette tape with it that was uh, reissued and reprinted with the original art. And it says, it doesn't say Creator on the cover. It says their original name, Tormentor. And the set is just their original demos. Oh, nice. Yeah, from when they were like 14, 15 years old. What's crazy is to think that you have these teenagers making music. It's not, I guess on the surface, it's not that crazy, but like some of the music that comes out from people that aren't, that haven't been part of the game for so long, it's like you're immensely talented at that point. It's just so exciting to see where they're going to go or where they have gone. Yeah, no, and that uh, creators had such a unique career as far as leases go. And they've changed their sound like so much over the years, but still kind of remain like true to their their original roots. path, I guess. Yeah, they tr stayed true to their roots. Absolutely. Um, I think there were some weird spots in the 90s, but I think every thrash band had a weird point in the 90s. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> that was just the trend. Yeah. Well, I mean, even look at Metallica. I know everyone talks to Metallica to death, but they, they changed their sound completely with load and reload. And it just... I felt like there was a lot of a huge shift in in heavy heavier metal at that point. You know, uh, honestly, a lot of people give Slayer credit for consistency, but I feel like Diablos and Musica was like probably the most inconsistent thing they did. Is that the one with the skull pentagram or the skeleton pentagram on the front? No, that is uh, Divine Intervention. That one's actually pretty damn good. That's actually got one of my favorite tracks by them called Two Thirteen. They have such a good discography. I'm. I'm pissed, but also I understand why they retired. 
I actually got to see that tour. <laughs> it felt like that tour was two or three years long. I wish it had been two or three years longer because once Tom Araya and Slayer retired, if that's when the pandemic hit. Yeah. I remember seeing them in a little town called Fort McMurray. It's in, I guess, central Alberta. And so me and my cousin drove up to Fort McMurray the first night and we watched uh, Lamb of God, Behemoth, and Slayer. And then the next day was Gojira, Avenged Sevenfold, and Metallica in Edmonton. So that was not only a shit ton of driving, but it was it was two incredible nights in a row. Yeah, that's a shit ton of driving, but well worth it. Oh, 100%. I do it again anytime. When I saw them, I saw them. We drove all the way to North Carolina because we didn't think they were coming to Atlanta. So we hadn't ordered the North Carolina tickets. And uh, next thing I know, like a few weeks later, they announced they're coming to Atlanta. But we already had the tickets and the hotel booked, so we said, fuck it. We drove to North Carolina. Uh, we saw up there. And right as I heard that fucking bass drum go, bump, 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 rain and blood, I saw a bolt of lightning shoot through the sky, and I heard thunder. And I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> That's awesome. It's small things like that that really do make the experience. Well, it's, it's like Dave Lombardo was controlling the weather with that kick drum at that point. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or not Dave Lombardo. It was uh, Paul Bostaff. I forgot Lombardo wasn't with him. It was Bostaff and Gary Holt, which is funny enough that I saw next time I saw uh, Gary Holt play and the next time that I saw Lombardo play, Gary Holt was back with Exodus and Lombardo was the testament. Yeah, it's interesting how they switch members from time to time, but I don't think there's as much emphasis on changing members nowadays as there was back in the day. No, not at all. Now musicians rotate in and out now. And, you know, if, if anybody's going to take Gene Hoagland's place with Testament at the time, it about had to been Lombardo. Especially with the history between those two, because Lombardo actually learned a lot about drums from Gene Hoagland, and Gene Hoagland was actually his drum tech for a while for Slayer. Oh, shit. Yeah, uh, Gene Hoagland was actually the guy that figured out double bass for Lombardo and showed him how to use a double bass. That's so cool. And Lombardo had never used one, and neither had Hoagland. Hoagland just figured it out and showed Lombardo everything. <laughs> That's a great way to pass the torch. In a sense, yeah. Um, I think Hoagland has uh, had a better career as far as like some of the bands he's been with you know, over the past 30 years, whereas like... Dave uh, Lombardo has been uh, I didn't care for Grip Inc and uh, like Phantomists are cool and all but at the end of the day it's very much like it, it is noise mm. I actually don't know that band so I'm just looking everything up here if you know Mike Patton singer for Faith No More Mr. Bungle yes. yep. that, that was one of his bands okay and you look at Mike Patton's discography and you listen to everything in his discography, you've listened to a lot of different fucking styles. Yeah, and it, it looks like that. I just got the list <laughs> up here and he's been in a part of so many different bands. He was actually the... Uh, he actually did voice acting too. He was a voice actor for uh, video game Left 4 Dead. Yep. Yeah, he did the uh, all the zombies and creatures and stuff. Like, he's the tank, he's the, the, uh, the hunter and all that stuff. Oh, cool. I think he was even the witch. <laughs> I never liked that witch. That's you fucking. You have to sneak around those things. I hated it. I've only played it once, but like, I th I would say that was my least enjoyable enemy. 
around my ass. I used to kill that bitch with a pump shotgun. <laughs> hey, there was a point, man, when that game was like real big. Yeah. Me and some buddies, we were like top five players in the world on Xbox on that. Oh, that's pretty cool. Like, if you looked at the scoreboards, we were up there in like the top five. So then you're also a pretty big video gamer. Not anymore that I got a kid, but yes, I used to. <laughs> now I, I barely find time to read the comics that I buy now. Yeah, I definitely know how that feels. It's like uh, you got a two-year-old. Yep. Yeah, they're fun, man. Um, mine's about to be four in January, and he is just like a ball of energy. It, it's insane. I can't keep up with him, and I, I, I feel like I'm at the age now where I could just look back and go, "I would have had that kind of energy." <laughs> I say that all the time, but then my wife is like, how do you have so much energy? Because I try and keep up. I'm like, I'm running on fumes. I don't have the energy, but this is what I have to do. Yeah, that's when the stress really hits you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for that, sure. That's yeah, That happened to me like a couple of months back, and I was just like, I want to slow down with a podcast or something. So like, I've not been hardly writing anything for the Infernal Tyrant stuff. I've been taking my time with it, and I slow down the podcast, and I've just been relaxing. As much need as that possible. Little bit of a break. Yeah, and there'll probably be a month where next year where I I just take a month off, just for my mental sanity. Yeah, makes sense. You know, I'm part of uh, Rat Salad Review Network, and you know, Wayne talked to me the other day, and he said, you know, we're taking a break for a while. I was like, good, you need to. I mean, Rat Salad Review runs twelve different shows, including you know, putting up my new episodes on their network as well. Hmm. So they run 12 different podcasts total, and he has to upload all this stuff. So it's a lot of work for Wayne. You know, and I'm very appreciative of what he does. And it's a lot of it's mostly metal and things like that. I think they've had a few like political podcasts before, but like they'll, they'll do all kinds of stuff, okay. man. 12 different podcasts, just on one guy, hey? That's, he's that's not, a lot of he's work. He's not in all of those podcasts. A lot of them are, you know, other people doing it, but like, He'll guest star on some of them sometimes and, you know, do stuff with them or, you know, information. He kind of just manages it, you know, puts it all up on Rat Salad. So. But it's been a nice boost to my audience. I've definitely appreciated that. And, uh, you know, I hope the bands, you know, get some lessons for that too as well. So that's my big deal. Sorry, I guess my mic was muted. <laughs> okay, yeah, I was like, I was about to jump in the chat and message you. I'd be like, hey, uh, everything up okay up there in Alberta? Yeah, no, I was wondering why you weren't responding, and I'm like, hmm, I thought I was getting kicked out for a second, but no, I was just on mute. I was like, I couldn't hear him. Something's going on here. <laughs> How did you become a part of Brass Salad Review? Um, you know those little lists I do on Twitter where I share all the different metal podcasts? Yeah. I had stumbled upon Rat Salad, and we became friends, and I put them on those lists. And then Wayne just messaged me one day, and he was like, Hey, man, I'm always looking for other podcasts. And I was like, Are you going to control anything to do with my show? He said, No. I said, Are you going to try to take any kind of rights or anything towards my show? And he said, No. I said, Are you going to fuck with me in any way? He goes, No. I said, Okay, cool. <laughs> Let's work together. <laughs> Those are the important questions. <laughs> as long as you don't you know, get in the way of me doing what I want to do and having that creative freedom... I'm fine. They even have uh, an episode here of your Infernal Tyrant interview. So that's yeah, cool no, Wayne interviewed me for it. Um, that was actually a deal through online metal promo. I paid him 
for uh, I was like, hey, can you get all this stuff out to reviewers and things like that for me? And I, you know, worked something out with him to get all that out. Paid him for it, and you know, interviewed me for that, and I interviewed Wayne, and yeah, it's just fun. And they've been doing this for a long time. They've been doing it for it a seems long like it. time. They've had a lot of listens and a lot of hits, man. Well, and then you have that diversity too. Like each different podcast is a different approach, has different subject matter, different bands that they're promoting. I mean, everything from reviews to roundtable talks. So you're going to find somebody who's interested. Well, the one that always trips me out is Old Man Metal because not only does he talk about like metal and stuff, but he does reviews for like knives and stuff interesting so there's this i mean like if you look at his photo on the website for old metal he's wearing a deicide shirt <laughs> and then you look behind him and there's all these like swords and like stuff kinds of crap on the walls they got one called uh just the cheese please where they review <laughs> 80s movies what made you decide to go with uh featuring guests on your podcast rather than just uh reviews or just talking metal uh you know, I'm not particularly sure how that came about. Um, I think it just became easier for me to interview people about their bands rather than me just trying to get friends together. And uh, isn't that ironic? It's it's harder to get friends together to do a podcast than it is to get some random stranger from California or Florida or, for fuck's sake, I've had people from Poland, you know, uh, do interviews on this podcast, on my podcast, not this podcast, my podcast. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it became easier to get people to come onto the podcast and do interviews. Um, you know, for me, it's like easier to get a hold of PR agents and stuff like that and be like, hey, uh, you got any bands you want to send? And most PR agents I get a hold of, they are more than willing to send someone in for an interview on podcast. Yeah, and they, they're definitely organized. Like you just say, uh, I'd like to feature this person. Here's my availability. And then they'll just send you a date and they're like, here you go. Yeah, I know. Um, I'm actually trying to get one ho- high profile guest right now and i don't want to spoil any of that and i'm trying so it may or may not happen and i don't want to announce anything but i am working towards an actual like first like super high profile guest a legend and now is this a band that you personally really enjoy or is this something that um you're just like interested in speaking with them it is but i haven't mentioned them in this interview perfect I'm looking forward to hearing that if it comes through. I, I tend to stand away. Uh, sorry, I tend to move away from that. Even mentioning who I'm going to have on the podcast, because even if I have a date set up, it seems like every time I mention to it, uh, mention them to a friend or a family member, like something goes on where that episode doesn't get recorded for a little while, and then I'm like, "Well, yep. this was fucking dumb." Oh no! Um, I had almost. I had a guy that was going to co-host with me. I actually announced it on another interview, and then like. A couple of weeks later, he was like, man, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. And I was like, fuck, <laughs> man. Oh, okay, you're good. <laughs> you got a touring band. You got a job and kids. You're good. Let it slide. Just this once, though, right? Yeah, just that once. No, no, it was uh, Richie Randall from Grey Piper, actually. I've always enjoyed having him on the show. He's a great guy, man. So... That's kind of why, too, is like I felt like he comes along and he helps with things like when I have him in an interview or like a roundtable. He's very inquisitive, too, and he asks good questions. He has a good personality. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like I said, man, there's these certain bands that when they come on the podcast, there's certain ones that I just sometimes I gravitate towards them just because of the people. 
I've noticed that myself too. Like even if I'm not a huge fan of the music, sometimes I have a really good conversation with the guys and it's like, okay, I want to bring you back on or I end up meeting them in person and it's, it's really cool, especially when you start to realize how small the community actually is. Right. Well, there was something funny. Uh, thinking back to it, you asked about like kind of how about how I went about getting guests. Like when I first started, it was very much a find Facebook groups and stuff like that and just put an ad out, you know, not, not an ad, but just put it out. Like I'm looking for guests for interviews for my podcast. Mm -hmm. But before that I'd had that connection with Tommy Stewart. He had played in a band called Hallow's Eve. If you've ever heard of them, I have not, but I will look them up. They were an older thrash band from the eighties. They were actually on metal massacre volume five and they were on metal blade records in the eighties. Um, he had recorded the Malviant album, Prophetic Desecration. Oh, cool. And that's how I met him. Well, I knew he had a label, but I tried saying, yeah, things aren't working out with the label we're on, Tommy. Boy, you should pick us up. He's like, man, I'd love to, but all I do is stoner and doom. So that didn't work out with that. And I just, you know, I kept in contact with him, talked to him. He's a fun guy. Um... I messaged him one day. I said, Hey, I've started up a podcast. Would you like to do an episode? And then said, sure, absolutely. I'd love to. The next thing I know, I, after the episode, I said, do you got the other, I know you got the label, man. You got bands, right? He's like, yeah. You want me to send you some bands? I was like, yes, please. <laughs> send away. So I got a lot of my first guests from him. You used to have to have like an in with somebody. And in this case, that definitely worked. But then you also said that you would just put up, like like you said, not an ad, but kind of a post just saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm looking for this. And people respond to that. I find that with social media, the level of engagement and accessibility to people that you're looking to chat with is like, it's crazy compared to what it used to be. And I don't think this, that my, my podcast would be as successful if I didn't have that social media aspect of things. Oh, none of us would. None of us would have any hardly any access to that on social media right now because it, it is such an open door for us to put stuff out. It, yes, it's hard to get through a lot of the uh, clutter and the, the noise out there, mm -hmm. but once you start getting through that and you start finding an audience, yeah, no, it's a wonderful thing. Especially when I started, started the podcast because my podcast was new. It was, you know, with this idea of, oh, it's a new, fresh podcast. We'll get in on mm -hmm. the floor. You know, um, and some of the bands I had on, on some of the early episodes, uh, Uberzerker was one of them. They're from Nashville. Just all of a sudden, I, I noticed a big uptick in like streams and people listening and downloading. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And I looked, and they were all for Uberzerker's episode. And I don't think they've done a lot of interviews. So I'm one of the few guys that's interviewed them. And like I had like all kinds of listens from Brazil, man, because they just randomly got a following in Brazil. That's cool. I had an interview with Oblivion from a year-end wrap-up, and it was kind of the same idea. Oblivion's an old-school uh, Canadian thrash metal band that kind of seems forgotten in a way. And I put on uh, their episode, and the first day I had well over 100 downloads, which was leaps and bounds compared to what the release day of every other episode was. It, no, it's crazy how that works sometimes, man. It, it, it's, it's insanity. I think one thing that's really humbling is just knowing that you have listeners in different different countries like north america is one thing but when you have somebody downloaded from africa or from asia you're just like holy shit like you really see the true scope of what social media can do and even if it's only like one or two view uh listens it's pretty cool that somebody took the time out to listen i know it's exciting i mean like i i get a random listen from china or like paraguay or something like that and i'm just i'm thrilled 
well, and then it's a testament to my own ignorance too, because I'm like, man, I didn't realize that they understood English to that extent. I mean, obviously, place a lot of places on the planet they they teach English, but there are some countries that I've seen downloads from, and I'm just like, I didn't realize that they would even be able to understand it. So, oh no, I mean, there's yeah, there's a lot of those like that where you'd be surprised that how many people can actually stand and how many English speaking people there are in random parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Well, shit, some of them speak better English than I do, and that's my mother tongue. Right. Well, I, I, I'm from old Georgia, so I, I know how that is. <laughs> Who are some of your current favorite bands, and what are some of your favorite genres? Current favorite bands and favorite genres. God damn, picking one, oof, picking current favorite bands, like more modern ones. Uh, I just mean like currently what's uh who are some of the ones in your in your rotation uh for me oh. like sometimes I have my my old I don't want to call them legacy bands necessarily but I have my staples but then there are some new and exciting bands so whatever however you choose to answer that question I'm happy with you know what's funny is I've been listening to uh a lot of really random stuff lately man it's crazy it's all over the place um like I still follow those staples man like go back and listen to blizzard of oz just because i love randy Rhodes so much that's like one of my mm -hmm. favorite guitar players um here the past few days i've been listening to uh, a guy from new york his band's called titanosaur it's a one-man yep. project and they just really released a new single didn't they yeah no one home so go check out the new titanosaur single buy some merch from him i actually bought one of his shirts one of the white ones with the the eater of death artwork on it and god i love that thing I absolutely love that shirt because it's not a black band shirt and it's different, you know? Mm-hmm. I've caught myself listening to a lot of, uh, like, random J-pop and stuff like that, too. That's interesting. Just in, like, spare time, you know, I like being in the car and I just want to listen to something random. Um, that's what I listen to. I actually just listened to New Theory on Leviathan 2. Okay. Yeah, they've, they've changed a lot. <laughs> and not a lot at the same time uh sabotage i've been listening to them again uh, i was listening to uh lich king the past few days um there's certain stuff i keep on rotation man but like this past few these past few months man it's just been such a wacky mix of everything uh i know i was had to go outside and do a bunch of yard work and i think i listened to yes for the like two hours you know <laughs> i was listening to old prog rock <laughs> So it, it's all over the place, man. Like I had an interview just today where we were talking about Stanley Clark who played for Return to Forever. So, I mean, stylistically, I don't think I just sit in metal anymore when I listen. I, I kind of go all over the place. Maybe some of that's from getting so many EPKs and stuff and I hear a lot of metal. No. Yeah. Uh, actually, one of my other questions that I did forget to mention was, um, there's a few different questions in here, but did you notice that when you started this podcast that your your view of, I guess, the music has kind of increased? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, leaps and bounds and ways. No, I, I learn more and more every time I do an episode or talk to someone. Like, there's there's times I feel like I do get in, like, a rut because, you know, I get two or three guests in a row, and it's like they want to talk about Judas Priest as their influence. And it's like, okay, cool. And then there's times where it's like, you know, I love Priest, by the way, but about to do a damn episode about Priest. But, um... You know, like today, I had some really interesting conversations, you know, so often uh, I know Tony M. Vichy from, uh, oh God, what was his band's name? I'll have to tell you that later, but he was on here and he was talking to me about, uh, he was talking to me about Nevermore and stuff, and I was like, oh good, somebody can talk to me about Jeff Loomis, you know? 
because I'm such a big Jeff Loomis fan. It surprises me sometimes with the stuff people will talk about. And again, it goes back to that personal interest or um, like their own foray into metal as well. It's like everyone's so diverse in that way. Yeah, you know, that's, the, that's the thing too I said that I, one of the confident things for me with the podcast is I feel like I can talk about most any genre of music because I've experienced a good bit of it. And, you know, music's so open nowadays, you can access anything. Even if I've never listened to a particular artist, I can go listen to them. Yeah, like instantaneously. You just type in their name and there you go. No, I mean, I got into a kick where I was listening to a bunch of Chet Atkins. And I was learning this stuff on guitar. And it was like, I could find it easy peasy. Now, learning to play it on guitar was a bitch, but, you know, <laughs> I had access to it, man it's also a downside as well because like there's so much content that it's so hard to narrow it down to what you like the most and it's also it's almost overwhelming because there is so much and you're trying to listen to everything that you possibly can but one of the things i like the most about uh, at least running the podcast is that each guest tells me kind of like their personal preferences so i normally like put together a little list of bands that i need to listen to afterwards and then it kind of opens up my mind a little bit more so i find myself enjoying more and more styles of music as this goes on and it's it's incredibly rewarding because now I can pick up things that, you know, my wife would like or that can play at family gatherings that isn't quite what I listen to, but at least I'm getting them kind of involved. Oh, absolutely. I think one of the interesting things for me is like, I don't know, in one of the early episodes, the uh, some of the early episodes, I talked to Richie Randall from Gravehopper, and he said what got him into metal was Judas Priest Live in the East. And then a few episodes later, I'd interviewed Patrick from uh, Grave Next Door, and they're both on Black Doomer Records with Tommy Stewart. And he said what got him into playing music was Judas Priest Live in the East. So the next time I got those two together, I was able to talk about that with those two and talk about that common interest. Like, sometimes I find common interest between guests, and it's it's just such an odd thing to, to think that, oh, well, both of them started out because of this live album, you know? Like, I'd run into somebody... Uh, like Titanus, the guy from Titanosaur, and like I'll talk to him about the Ramones and shit. I'll talk to him about mm -hmm. Motorhead too. You know? Yeah, totally. It's cool to see how like people can start at the same place and then go totally different directions. Oh, that yeah, absolutely, yeah. Now, like some of the guys I've had that are you know older musicians that have been around for a while and see where they've gone and the different stuff they're doing now. Carl Kennedy was one of them, man. Uh, you know, started out with the Rods, and such a different sound than I think what he did with Kennedy or with the more fifties now. So you've given me a long list of things that I need to listen to. So <laughs> that'll be my, the rest of my day, I think. Yeah. That'd probably keep you. Well, I was hoping more than a day. <laughs> well, I mean to get things started. Yeah. Oh man. Like there's another thing about the podcast too. Is I, it's, it's sort of a cur It's a, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse because you, know, you talk about getting this list of stuff to talk about and i feel like because i leave subject matter open sometimes to different things i feel like sometimes like i'll get a list of horror movies i need to watch or it's like yeah. here's a list of bands or it's like oh here's a comic you need to check out you've never read or here's have you ever seen this wrestling match oh really no have you seen this or this and i've got like list of stuff scribbled out in this little book that i literally just filled up today of stuff i need to check out still well, I mean, you did do quite a few interviews, so there's a there's a lot of content for you to go through now. Oh yeah, today wasn't too bad. Uh, it's some of the pa it's some of the ones in the past few months that have been like that, where I'd get like 
one guy gave me a list of horror movies and it was like 15 movies long <laughs> yeah i uh had an interview with um oh fuck now i just forgot his name and that's going to be embarrassing but um volci the italian brutal death metal band and their their albums are focused on one of antonio fulci's uh movies and their italian horror movies um yep so now he was telling me about like his favorites and a couple of the ones that he had kind of centered albums around and now i i still have those on my list of to be watched and it's like again with a kid with the job with the podcast it's like when do you find time so i i've got to start organizing that a little bit better well, dominico diego that's his name for fuck's sakes there we go <laughs> See, we, we both have the same problems here so it's this kind of shows everybody what we go through as podcasters <laughs> maybe they appreciate us a little more now maybe you appreciate us show us some love on twitter and facebook with that said mike um it's been a pleasure chatting with you uh it's been a couple hours now so i'm gonna wrap things up and hopefully we can chat again in the future because th there's so much i want to pick your brain about yeah absolutely hopefully on a day when my sinuses aren't draining and stuff and uh yeah <laughs> i tried to pick a day when i hadn't done three interviews you know what I couldn't even tell, to be honest. So, I mean, everything was great. I had an awesome time with the conversation. And again, uh, I learned a lot. So this is pretty cool. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad we, you could learn something. Uh, you know, I've learned a lot by doing this interview myself. So uh, I want to thank your audience and tell them to be sure and go check out the Metal Thrashing Nerd podcast. Um, I have a large variety of different types of metal on there. You know, I'm very open towards it. So be sure to check that out and check the bands out. Even if you don't listen to an episode, go check out a band. And for people trying to find your podcasts, um, obviously it's on streaming services, but is there a specific place that you'd like them to listen or um, maybe even through um, Buzzsprout or something like that? Yeah, I mean, wherever you listen is fine. Uh, you can find me on any of those things. Uh, you go to my Buzzsprout homepage and it'll take you straight to any of those. You know, there's a little icon on the episodes that should take you to any of that stuff. Whether it's Apple or Spotify, whatever. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time on Gyro Nation Metal. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. The podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you would like to support this podcast, please consider checking out my Patreon. Thank you.